Welcome back to our listeners and welcome to the Change Cultivators podcast. My name is Rosen Boy and I have a, co- a consultancy called Currency, which specializes in brand and reputation management and change activation. And I'm here with my co-host, Patrick Fitzmaurice. Hello to all from me as well. As Ros says, I'm Patrick Fitzmaurice. I run a consultant advisory firm called Caterpillar Farm, where we help do change activation. And we are really excited about today's discussion with John. We have the pleasure of uh, speaking to John Boyens today of Boyens Group, where we will be discussing traditional selling meets a virtual world. John, say hi to our guests. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening, and I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So John, John started off as a salesperson carrying a bag around, and then he moved on to managing a sales force and then onto an executive sales leader and for the last 20 years has been a business owner and sales training coach. So John, you really have seen the ebb and flow of the sales industry over many years. Um, And during this time, moving from traditional selling um, to now obviously more online digital uh, industry. And now, as if that wasn't enough, we're in the middle of a global pandemic that's meant people have to stay at home. So the face-to-face sales interaction is going through yet another transition. Um, How has the global pandemic and the economic uncertainty impacted the sales industry as far as you can see um, in the space that that you guys are leading? I think when you look at it globally, sales is now and will forever be different. It, It is just unbelievable how things have changed. And there was a study done by Bain and Company that was powered by Dynamic. And it said that 50% of B2B, business-to-business sales transactions were being done virtual before the pandemic. That's something that needs to set in, right? And then you kind of look about, okay, now post or during and post-pandemic, what's going on? You can't get face-to-face. It's harder to be able to get to decision makers on the phone. Right, so those face-to-face meetings, when you do get to have them, are gonna be much more important, but there's also gonna be way more competing priorities. And so when you look at that, you can't sell the traditional way. It can't be a relationship, press the flesh, shake hands, see somebody. You need to be able to do virtual selling, leveraging Zoom calls and go to meeting and all these other technologies. And I created a term called environmental professionalism. And what I mean by that is when you're on a call like this, you've got to be able to make sure that you've got a quality backdrop. You need to make sure that the lighting is good so people can see you. You need to have a good sound system so you can be heard. And so the whole model is different. And little things like just looking at the light on the top of your computer or your camera versus looking at the screen, you can make the right kind of eye contact. So there's a lot of things that have changed. And if you continue to sell the way you always sell, you will fail. No doubt about it. And so the migration, I hate the word pivot or, you know, next normal or new normal, but that is it. If you don't pivot and move and change before you have to, you're going to not be successful. 
Yeah. And I suppose also it's not only once you get on the call with somebody, it's getting the call with somebody because now in this virtual world, as you say, so much more is competing for your attention. I mean, I'm sure everybody can contest to the fact that since we've been in lockdown, you've got more emails, you've got more invitations, you've got more meetings to go to. And there's almost this fatigue, you know, um, before you've even got onto the call with somebody. Um, how how are you guys adapting your sales training and, and techniques and materials? Because obviously you're having to do this very quickly. You know, this is not something you say, okay, the industry's changing over six months. You know, you're having to reinvent your materials that you're obviously selling to go in and train people. How are you managing with the pace of, of having to update your training, you know, in light of these things? Well, there's a little bit of fortuitous planning on our part. About four years ago, my late wife and I started Boyens University, and it was an online portal, a place for salespeople, sales leaders, and business owners to go to be able to watch videos, to be able to get templates and scripts and all those kinds of things. And, and for the last four years, we've had everything from platform issues to communication issues to, to speed and visual and then be able to have it accessible to mobile as well, right? All these things that were going on. And so it was finally ready to launch uh, at the beginning of this year, but we didn't want to be able to appear tone deaf to the marketplace and talk about this is available. So we did a soft launch in May, but we built a, a university where not only do you have all this content, these are three to five minute videos that are topic specific. So each course has six, eight, 10, 12 videos with it. And so you can go ahead and refresh. And one of my greatest compliments that we've been given thus far is I had a person who used to be the CEO of North America for a big consulting company is now doing business development for a company out of Chicago. And he said that he sat in front of an appointment that he was having with these, our, one of our modules called Sticker Shock and about being able to cost justify your price. He said he listened to that, which gave him a tremendous amount of confidence and some different direction from questioning and was able to create a win-win scenario before that meeting. That, I, I mean, I can't have a better compliment than that. That's awesome. That's fantastic. It's awesome. You know, I, 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 love, I, I love the portability of what great salespeople learn to do through their career because, you know, the, the cliche saying is everybody in a business setting needs to think of themselves as selling something at some point, selling an idea, selling a strategy, even if you're not the named title of a salesman along the way. Um, and also, you know, selling's been around a long time. It may be the second oldest profession, maybe the first, I don't even know, right? So selling has been around a long time. Um, the disruption that comes at salespeople all the time is really fascinating to me, right? You know, years ago it says, well, you know, we got to get you upskill you in sales negotiation, or now we got to teach you consultative selling, or now we've got to teach you these things. As you look at the trends, like what is the current disruption in sales that, you know, beyond just having to be virtual, which may be the biggest thing, but you know, what do you see coming? Like, what do you see the disruption that's happening that says fundamentally the skill set the next generation of sales organization sales people are going to have to have comes down to these couple of things do you have a point of view on that i do and and, and i think it's a great question because that really we're cutting to the core of this discussion and that is when you look at sales today you can no longer be product centric you cannot be just relationship based those things are benefits down the road but when you reach out today, the way I talk about building your pipeline, I use the term called targeted stalking. <laughs> so that you can find the right kind of prospects. 
So today, because of what's going on, it is much more difficult to unseat an incumbent. So going out just doing new business development for the sake of trying to get a new prospect converted is not the best way to go. Where we need to go, there's three areas that, that the listeners need to focus on. Number one, they need to be able to retain their existing customers. And when I say retain, I mean at the same volume and at the same frequency. So retain. The second piece on it is, and, and one of the best ways, by the way, to retain them is to focus on cross-sell and upsell. And I think those are two different things. Cross-sell is wide, upsell is deep. So when you look at cross-sell, are there other departments, divisions, subsidiaries, sister companies that you can talk to? Because you already have an in, so going wide. It's the old beachhead mentality in military strategy. The upsell is going to sell additional products and services. In the banking industry, especially retail banking, they use a term called PPH, products per household. And what they realize is once somebody gets to 2.5 products per household or greater, the stickiness level of that relationship increases, right? So cross-sell and upsell is part of that retention. The second thing is referrals. It's a lost art. People are not asking for referrals today. And if somebody loves what you do, they can become an evangelist for you. So if we talk about disruption and change, what better way than have your customers sing your praises to potential opportunities? And the third is one that people don't even focus on anymore. And I will tell you, it's a place to mine gold. And that is a win-back strategy. Think about customers that haven't done business with you in a year, two years, three years, five years, et cetera. And if you reach back out to them with the purpose of thanking them for their business in the past and to let them know that you want to earn their business once again, and during these troubled times, here's how you've supported your clients with that compassion and empathetic messaging, you can win those back. So I'm seeing industries today, not just our, our video conferencing industries, right. I'm seeing industries that are still being successful if they focus on those three areas, that upsell, cross-sell on retention, referrals, and win-backs. I love it. I love it. It's, it's, it's spot on for kind of the dynamics. And I'm really curious, this whole world that we I want to connect it back to COVID and the fact that we're doing all this virtual. And um you know, sales leaders need to coach their teams on how to do that in a world where I can't just go meet you, right? You mentioned relationships and, you know, pressing the flesh and those kinds of things, right? Just getting out and kind of going to the hockey game together or those kinds of things that the, the classic kind of tools and trinkets of a B2B relationship along the way. Now I got to figure out how to port that over into virtual and how do I build that relationship, right? How do you either reassess that relationship? How do you refresh that relationship? How do you do it in a world of social media, LinkedIn and other professional social platforms? I can't go to conferences and events, which it might be a source of new events. How do you do that? now that the world has disrupted your ability to kind of seek out and do relationship building? Yeah, so I think, I, I think you still do relationship building, but you just do it virtually. Right. And so let me explain what I mean by that. If you're going to make an outreach, if you're going to pick up the call, a phone and call somebody, if you're going to do some kind of Zoom virtual call, there are three things you should do before you do that. The first thing is to do some research about that relationship with either that person or that company that you're reaching out to. So you need to know, I'd look at my AR system or I'd look at my CRM system and go, what's the history, right? That's part one. Part two is I'd go to their website and understand what kind of initiatives or projects are they doing? 
you know, what are some of the messages from the senior leadership, those kinds of things. But then the third, and you hit it, is that social media research to go on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Pinterest and YouTube. You want to understand that person that you're reaching out to. Where did they grow up? Where did they go to school? What sports do they fancy? What teams do they root for? What causes do they donate to or volunteer for? If you can find that information, now you can have a conversation virtually where you've brought the walls down. In, in the past, when you used to go in person, you could look around the office and see what's going on, right? And then you could kind of say, oh, I see there's a trophy, a golf trophy, or I see there's a stuffed animal on the wall or you know whatever it may be, and you can react to that. Well, that's the same kind of thing you need to be able to do in advance. And so pre-call planning becomes paramount today, more so than ever before. It's great. And you used the term stalking before, and you had an adjective in front of that that I can't remember at the moment. But it sounds like stalking in a good way, in a productive way. What was the word you used earlier around stalking? It was targeted stalking. Targeted stalking. <laughs> targeted stalking. I love yeah. it. And what I mean by that is salespeople historically have spent a lot of time selling to people who can't buy. Yeah. So either somebody that's really deep seated with their competition, somebody that doesn't have the power of the pen, et cetera. So when I say one of the keys to being able to grow your business is identify what your best clients look like and find more that look like them. So if it's manufacturing, if it's wholesalers, if it's financial services, if you know what they look like and you, you've got some good things in, right in your favor, first off, you know their industry so you can speak their language. Second, you know their pains, so you can provide solutions that help them address their pains. And third, you give them hope because you've done this before. It's not your first rodeo. So that opportunity to be able to do that targeted stalking is why I use that phrase. And I do it tongue in cheek, just like you said. You know, it's kind of a cute little saying, but, but why do you spend so much time selling to people that don't want to buy? Yeah. And, and I think the balance as well with this research, you know, knowing your audience, I think now with the virtual world is, is brevity because you can do your research and then, you know, target somebody with all this information that they could put off, you know, within the first two minutes. So it's how do you do the research, be informed, but still hit them with brevity and, you know, being impactful. Again, we spoke about all the noise and, um, you know, the, the attention people are getting now in this virtual world. John, I wanted to take you back. You spoke of earlier about referrals and that being sort of key part of the sales process. And, you know, um, being a communication person, I'm always very interested in, in human behavior. Um, we have obviously many, many different generations that you're dealing with now. You've got the older generation, you've got Gen Z coming up. Um, and, you know, the, the new generation is very much purpose led brand advocates you know they're very much about i've got to believe in a brand um and i know you guys have done quite a lot of work on on six primary behavior uh, buying patterns um i'm sure our listeners would be interested just in hearing a little bit about how the selling process and you know reaching the different generations is becoming more and more prevalent because you obviously have your you know, offline, more traditional generation, and you have a very different generation in the in the Z's. Um, what 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 if what can you guys share with us with regards to the different buying behaviors and personalities we're seeing now? Yeah, so we've done some research over the years, interviewed over thirty five hundred companies, and we said when a salesperson calls on you, what do they do that you like? 
What do they do that you hate? What would you suggest they could do better? If salesperson A and salesperson B had a relatively similar product or service, why would you buy from A versus B? So over that time, we were able to find that really in the B2B world, business to business world, there are six primary buying behaviors. The problem is nobody gives you a business card that goes, hi, I'm ego-based. I'm price sensitive, I'm risk averse. And the, the point of this is, if you look at the six, they are ego-based, price sensitive, risk averse, loyalty-based, convenience-based, and value-based. Those are the six. And so what we need to be able to do is enable the buyer to buy. So back to the question Patrick asked earlier about disruptors. What's, what's a disruption? Well, now it's about focusing on the buy cycle versus the sales cycle. How does the buyer want to buy? So if you understand what that buyer looks like, and then you understand what their needs are, you understand how to sell them. So let's give you an example. If I was talking to an ego-based buyer, and I'm sure as I describe this, people's faces will start to pop up in your minds as I say this. An ego-based buyer, what, what do they sound like or how do they act? Well, you hear a lot of I, 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 me, me, me coming out of their mouth. It's all about them, right? But they're also brand conscious. They have purchased off of the line. They're, they have a tendency to be uh, impatient. They have a tendency to be, uh, you know, kind of denigrate the whole process. They're kind of a know-it-all, et cetera. So how do I effectively sell to that ego-based buyer is by asking questions right? Asking questions, stroke their ego. Hey, you've built a wonderful business here. Tell me about it, right? That's the whole part because all you need to do is open it up. You're not talking about your product, your solution, the industry. You're going to let them talk. If you let the buyer talk long enough, they will tell you how to sell them. That is true universally. Now you take these six buying behaviors and you move it to generational differences. Now you got a whole new set of data to be able to work with. So whether you're a baby boomer like I, or a Gen Xer, Gen Z, Gen Y, right? All these people buy differently. They use and they're influenced, and that draws right up your alley, they're influenced by different things. So for me as a baby boomer, I wanna be able to have somebody that builds credibility, that has a long lasting relationship. The brand has been you know, universal for 50 years. I wanna see the proof. If I'm a, if I'm a Gen Z, you know, if my friend tweets out that this is a good thing to do, I'm going to go buy it, right? And so the medium that you use is different. The messaging is different. But I will tell you with the change that we're dealing with here in sales, the messaging is going to be universal relative to compassion and empathy. So the medium will change, but you have to go back. So Gen Z's, as an example, want to be able to do things for the economy, you know, for the, for the environment. They want to be green sensitive. They want to be able to give to causes. That's a different model than somebody here that was kind of the old stair stepper that was going up the corporate ladder, et cetera, right? So you've got to address them differently. So my, if, I, if I simplify sales, and I hope it doesn't insult anybody when I say this, I think if you simplify sales, it goes down to the following. Our job is to uncover need, issues, pain, whatever you want to call it, uncover need, prioritize that need, and then match a solution. Mm. So whether it's the six different buying behaviors or whether it's the generational differences, we still have to find out how do we get them to admit need and then which is most important to them. What's the hot button that they're dealing with and then match the right solution. So I developed a question 40 years ago that I started asking in sales 
and I've taught it now all across the globe. And it is a great three-part question. And I normally ask it in a discovery call towards the end of my discovery call. And the question is simply this. If I was fortunate enough to earn your business, and it were a year from now, how do you know it was a good decision? If I was fortunate enough to earn your business, and it were a year from now, how do you know it was a good decision? That one question has three parts. Fortunate enough to earn your business. So I'm not trying to sell them something. I'm not going to be pushy, right? I'm going to work hard to earn. And it were a year from now, right? I want them to imagine the goodness of being a Boyens Group client for a year and all that comes with that because most people hate change. And, and we've all lived through this. I mean, I have seen and talked to salespeople and experienced it myself where you go in to talk to a prospect, they spend the entire meeting complaining about their current provider only to have them place the next order with that provider. I mean, how crazy is that? What they just said is those guys are the devil, but they're the devil I know. Yeah, I'm going to stick with them. It's easier. Yeah. And then the third part becomes the keys to the kingdom. How do you know it was a good decision or how do you know it was money well spent? The people that respond that to me, well, if the size and quality of my pipeline improves, if the average order size improves, if I grow market share, if I'm able to protect margins, right? They will tell you what part of your solution base to focus on in that conversation. So it really is all about understanding the buyer and having it be the buyer's idea. That's why I talk about the buy cycle versus the sales cycle. Yeah. And we've seen in the last few years, I mean, this has been discussed to death over the years, but it's the marriage between the CTO and the CMO. It's, and, and I think that's the shift between the sale and the buy cycle is that the marketing department is needing to know so much more. Well, they do know so much more about the, the audience where, you know, you've got the operations of the business saying, we've got to sell this. This is where our margins are, you know. So, so that relationship, are you addressing that in, in, in the sales work that you guys are doing? Absolutely. Um, and, and I'm going to say this with love. I hope it comes across to your listeners. Uh, I've never, ever met a product manager that ever had an ugly baby, <laughs> right? It was always sales, couldn't fix it. The market wasn't ready for it, the competition, right? It was always something else because in the past, again, we're talking about disruption now. In the past, it was all product-centric. Somebody said, I'm going to nail these two things together because people will buy it. Now we have to talk about what's the audience needs, what are those needs, right? What's the, what's the barrier of entry? What's the competitive landscape, right? We, the marketing and the sales organization, the finance organization and the technical organization all have to work hand in glove to have that kind of solution that matches accordingly, right? Across all areas. Because you used to hear finance was called the sales prevention department or, or the CTO would be saying things like, oh, it'll be in the next release, right? And it's like, no, we've got to identify what this market is in order to be able to satisfy the market and quote unquote own that market, right? If we're good in manufacturing, as an example, why wouldn't we own that space, right? Why wouldn't we go deep and wide in that space? And the reason is oftentimes is that we're putting out the little fire on the desk as opposed to figuring out what's causing the doggone fire in the first place. Yeah, I mean, and, and I love how universally applicable this is because it's about human behavior right? It's not about sales, quote unquote, right? And a lot of our listeners don't have a sales hat on, right? And as they're processing this, I would just encourage them to kind of take the gems that you're giving and saying, look, this is just about how you connect with people, 
influence people for some kind of goal, right? Regardless, whether you're selling an idea internally, whether you're, I go back to what I said earlier, whether you have to advocate it for a strategy. I mean, so sales often gets kind of a bad rap in something, right? You're trying to force people to buy something you don't want to buy and you want to beat out your competition. I love your flip to that because it's always this notion of, no, 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 this is a value exchange that we're getting to. Whether the value exchange is a pencil, whether the value exchange is software, whether the value exchange is a car or a big piece of machinery, there's value exchange around this. Um, I, I've, I've dabbled a little in sales training, certainly not of the scale and expertise that you have, uh, but I was asked at one point in a workshop that I ran um, and, and it prompted me to ask the entire room. I said, what's the single biggest thing that you want the people you're selling to, to say about you as a salesperson? And to a person it came back, be trusted. I wanna be trusted, right? I wanna be trusted. And I said, cool, how do you earn people's trust? And blanks, right? It's this notion of, wait, you just said your relationship is going to have to be based on trust over the long term. And now you're not actually digging into that. So we, we explored that entire thing as a sidebar exercise Said your intent has to be about making them successful, regardless of what you're selling. And you have to demonstrate some expertise that you can play a role in helping them be successful. So trust equals intent plus expertise. And I think, you know, that currency of trust in a relationship can people can learn so much from sales. And I'd really be interested in your perspective as you work with so many different sales experts and sales leaders on how to really deal with this relationship, not just because you're selling a thing, but because you're trying to build universal trust. Yeah, so that is a great question, Patrick. And I will give you, I think there are five keys to building trust in sales. The first key is to do what you said you're gonna do. Whatever that is, do what you said you're going to do. If you're going to introduce them to somebody, if you're going to do a demo, if you're going to send them literature, right? Do what you said you're going to do. Second, show up on time and be prepared. So in the virtual world, you know, that doesn't mean if it's a 10 o'clock call that you sign on at 10 o'clock, you're on at 945 to make sure you work out all the technical glitches, right? You have all the information you need at your fingertips should they ask. Third, the third part on building trust, listen more than you talk. Two ears, one mouth, use them in proportion, that old saying. But the best way to listen more than you talk is by asking questions, needs-based questions, behavioral, situational questions. That allows you to have the buyer speak, the prospect speak, and you match to that. Fourth, and this is a home run one, focus on what they are buying versus what you are selling. Right? So in other words, what, what does it enable them to do? What, how does it make them the hero? And then the fifth one is professional and timely follow up and follow through. Because your part about that research you did in the sales training, it substantiates what we have come up with. The number one reason by a landslide was why somebody bought from salesperson A versus salesperson B was that I trust them. But we've taken it all to that next level to understand what that looks like and more importantly, how it can be learned. Because again, you don't kick the slaps out of the crib going, I'm gonna be trustworthy today right? You end up having to understand how to do those kind of things and who determines if you're trustworthy or not. It's the buyer. Although, although I do get up every day and say, I'm going to try to be pretend I'm trustworthy every day. That's what I do, John. <laughs> you chant it. I'm trustworthy. I'm trustworthy. <laughs> no, I, I actually say I will pretend to be trustworthy today because I, I, don't, I don't like the authenticity of it. <laughs> <laughs> John, so we've chatted about the, the change in sales over the years. Um, where do you think, you know, obviously you, you're having to retrain your sales team and your salespeople as the, as the industry progresses. 
Where do you think companies are getting it wrong in transitioning their teams and their skill sets over the changing dynamics of the, the market and the industry? Who, where do you think they, they fail in taking their staff along that journey to keep them relevant in, in the points we've been discussing? There is one that I've seen emphasized way more now since March. It was always a problem, but it has now become mission critical. And that is not having a standardized in writing onboarding plan for the new hire. I mean, a 30, 45, 60 day plan. In other words, how do I get onboarded? And as a matter of fact, it's one of the things that we did in uh, Boyne's University is we created a self onboarding program for them that's about 20 some videos about what questions the salesperson needs to ask his manager of, uh, you know, about, okay, was this a new position or is this a replacement position? You know, understanding the nuance of what's going on, talking about having structured conversations with each department head to know what their missions are, what their KPIs are, what you can do in sales that will help them and what you do in sales that will hurt them. You know, being able to get their, their um, uh, you know, their, all of their logoed material, their phone, their laptop, all these other things, really being able to set that up. So, People were doing it poorly beforehand, and now they're having to do virtual onboarding. How good is that? And so most organizations that I see, you know, like, here's the car keys, there's the coffee pot, good luck, right? And, and you need to be able to have it standardized. My, my son, uh, my oldest son, was recruited by Dell Computer. And so if, if Dell is listening, they're going to be disappointed. But they were hurt, he was recruited by Dell Computer, and when he came on board, it took them two weeks for him to get a computer. Crazy. But his goal started day one. Yeah. So there's an example of this where you're going, you knew he was coming, right? How do we not have that? So I think the biggest issue that's going on and, and something that will really change the game going forward is companies that do a great job of onboarding their people virtually. It'll shorten their ramp time to success. They will, the people will be more engaged and accountable and they will have a tendency to stay longer. So yeah. why would you not build that up? If you don't, you're going to continually be teaching somebody something 90 days later, 180 days later. And a great measurement for them is the leader, whether it be the executive team or the sales leader, at the 90-day mark, they should go back to all their new hires and say this, what is it you know now you'd wish you'd have known 90 days ago? In other yeah. words, help them refine and rebuild that onboarding process. That's not a static event. There's an outline, but it needs to be modified to be able to help them change. Yeah. And Patrick and I have discussed this with, uh, you know, a lot of our other guests is that, um, you know, even with change management, so you're talking about starting a new company and onboarding, but I think the principles apply across the the board in the sense that when a company is going through change and transition, the management team spend months behind closed doors, you know, yes. discussing, talking to the shareholders, dealing with the CEO, planning everything, getting their, their thoughts together. And then they launch it to the company and it'll be, you know, a two-day workshop or, you know, four emails. And then they expect everybody to know what's going on, you know. And I think, you know, in my 20 plus years in the in the corporate world, I think, one of the biggest things that I could attribute to my success is getting ingrained in different parts of the business. You know, so I headed up communications, but I had a best friend in finance. I had a best friend in legal. You know, I made sure I knew everybody else's jobs. 
And I think, you know, you talk about that with onboarding. I think that's the same with change management is you coming in, have you spent enough time in the change onboarding? And then have as part of the measurement and as part of the criteria, has everybody had the opportunity to talk to the other departments to say, okay, we've got to make all this change. I'm going to change my department but you need to change with me. How do we come on together? You know, it's, it's, it, I, you know, I think it was with, um, we had Duncan Wardle on from Disney. Um, and, and one of the things he said was the biggest successes in, in Disney was it, you don't just have an innovation team, you know, legal, finance, HR, everybody has to have that culture of innovation. And I think that applies to, you know, what you're saying is it's this onboarding is it's it's not an individual thing. The machine's got to work together. It's got to be part of a culture, you know, where everyone's measured against the same thing. They, you know, they, they the objectives are all intertwined, you know, and as you say, you know, starting a company two weeks to a laptop and go figure it out yourself, how are you going to succeed, right? I think you're spot on. I mean, if anybody that's been in the corporate world for any period of time at an executive level has had a retreat, which I still don't know why they call it a retreat because that's going backwards, but everybody's gone through a retreat and then they do their vision or their mission statement, right? That's what's going on. And you spend days arguing about, is it an a uh or a the, right? <laughs> the words that don't even matter. And then they don't understand when they go to roll it out to the team, why they don't buy in. When, yeah. You know, I've been giving keynotes all over the world. And I ask this question all the time. How many of you all have a mission statement? Everybody's hand in the audience goes up. I said, now how many can repeat it without looking at their business card or their collateral material? And almost all the hands go down. Because to your point, they didn't internalize it. It was the, it was the vision statement of 13 people at an offsite, you know? And so if you're gonna have it, change is cultural. And, and, and I think, you know, when you hear all of this, that, that opportunity, you know, people always use the word change as a bad word. And change is really inevitable. You know, when you look at the emotional part of change, most people go back and go, well, fear of the unknown, uncertainty, mistrust, right? So they go, you know, you want to mess with a salesperson? Tell them you're changing their comp plan. They'll go scurrying off into the closet crying, right? So, but, but if you look at change as the catalyst or the engine, things would not have happened. Let, let's use a good example of a worldwide company because I know that's what your audience is. If you take a look at IBM, who would have thought that IBM would have stopped selling typewriters? Then who would have thought they'd stop selling computers only to be one of the world's largest managed services organizations? So if you were the top typewriter salesperson for IBM when they stopped selling typewriters and you didn't migrate, if you didn't change, if you didn't get that education, you no longer had a job. And I think that's a great example for the listeners to understand is that change is not a bad thing. And and you know, especially in the sales game, you sales is a noble profession. I think sales fixes everything. I really do. And that's not just my ego speaking on this. You can't save your way to profitability, but you can sell your way to profitability. And so again, if you use that in a noble approach and understand that selling is evolved and changed now, it's a virtual world and you can't you can't put the genie back in the bottle and you embrace that change, you will be more successful going forward than you were before but you can't yeah. do it doing it the same way. So what I'm hearing is you need to be excited by change in order to succeed. You need to, you need to embrace it as something fun. Yeah, um, I, I would say you have to be engaged in change and you have to be accountable for being able to help do your part to make sure that it's adhered to. 
So as opposed to fighting it every step of the way, it's like, okay, let's understand the bigger picture, understand how my role fits into this wheel that we're building, and then really get excited about it, passionate about that, that it's giving you a chance to further your career and stretch you. It gets you out of your comfort zone and puts you in your learning zone. If you embrace it that way, you can go into that thing charging full speed ahead. If you, if you want to find something wrong with change, you can. I promise you, you can. Yeah. I've used the quote before with Charles Darwin with his time in the Galapagos where he talks about um, it's the species that survive that are the, you know, that adapt to change the fastest. It's, you know, that's the, the fundamental principle. And I was actually consulting to a large um, educational institution in Boston this week, and we were talking about the change 9-11 brought and the change that COVID's going to bring and how, you know, 9-11 changed air travel, you know, for the negative, because obviously it's far more complex now, but the, this pandemic is actually going to bring good change to educations because of the virtual and the remote learning and all that. And really, you know, as you say, it's what is your mindset? You know, do you see this as a positive and, you know, an opportunity or is it now, oh my goodness, I've got to start again. You know, that kind of energy is not going to take you forward, right? Yeah. And, 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 Sales as a profession is a pretty rapidly changing one at the moment. And I want to touch on one thing to see what your perspective is, because, you know, these disruptions that come at anybody, but uh, we'll put them in the lens of, of sales, um, particularly with virtual um, and particularly with automatic stuff, right? There are people that would argue that, you know, the sales process can be automated to such a degree that it fundamentally is a threat to the role of a salesman, certainly a role of a non-strategic salesman, right? Salesperson, um, right? And, and as you think about those skill sets you're talking about, as you kind of talk to people to say, how do I stay relevant? How do I build my relevancy as a professional in a world where, you know, whether you want to take it all the way to, you know, AI technologies and those kinds of things saying, you know, wow, maybe a buyer doesn't want to deal with a person for 80% of the sales transactions because I can do that other ways and I can do searches and internet and I can programmatically do that. Uh, but the human factor, which we talked about before, is so critical in all of these disruptions. And I, I want to kind of put that back to you going, you know, maintaining your relevancy as a human in an interaction where the world is disrupted by a lot of these automated technologies is a fascinating way for anybody, but I think particularly for sales professionals. I agree with you. And I, I think this is part that Roz was talking about earlier. This is where the CMO and the CTO and the chief sales officer and others need to be able to get hand in glove to be able to make this seamless. So I, I always looked at marketing as giving me the air cover, right? It's, it's getting the message out, it's creating the brand. The whole part to me about marketing is about curing, uh, causing curiosity. Tell me more, I wanna learn more, right? That's what's going on. And so you can automate a lot of that with your social media and your messaging and your videos, et cetera, and be able to get that. And if you're starting to bring people in, so it's not only push, it's also pull marketing where we're bringing people in, we still need to have a salesperson there to be able to do it. It's like going, let's see if I can give this, it's in my head, I hope it's a good analogy. If you went into the doctor and you said, I have a runny nose, I got watery eyes, I got a scratchy throat, and you just write a prescription, you don't feel particularly good about that, that interaction. But if you said the same thing and somebody took a throat culture or looked in your mind and then wrote a prescription, you feel better. So I think the purpose is the salesperson is there to diagnose before they prescribe. And so the whole point is that salesperson is still needed to be able to vet through because we realize that even if we do a phenomenal job on marketing and communication, 
we don't know how the audience interpreted that. So if I just leave it to that to try to automate it, say, click here, buy here, right? Then I have not done a good job of diagnosing. They, they have picked a, a solution. It may not be the best for them. No, I, I love it. I love it. L last note that I made a while back that I want to circle back to here. Um, leadership came up as a theme, right? Um, and there is a tendency among selling organizations to promote great salespeople into positions of leadership, which we could debate whether it's a good idea or not, mm -hmm. right? But a lot of what you're talking about kind of goes up to the top of a, of a selling organization of what are characteristics? of a, a great sales leader, because you could argue that those are the ones that really have to bring their teams through disruptive times, help them get clarity of where they need to change to. So comments a little bit, if you could, on you know the role of leadership in times of disruptive change to be able to bring teams of people forward, particularly salespeople, but it could be for anyone. Yeah. So, so there's a couple things. I mean, one of the things that, that I would like to state is for the most part, most salespeople, most managers, most leaders, did not go into a management or a leadership position because they demonstrated a skill or expressed an interest. They were a good individual performer and then they got promoted into that role. So they've not been given the training, they've not been given any of the tools to be able to really be successful. So a very small percentage of those uh, really become successful long-term and it creates a lot of turnover because you had a good employee who now either leaves or gets asked to leave because they couldn't do the next job but we didn't give them a chance to be good at it. So if I take it specifically to sales, there's several things that I think are important. I think if you're going to be a sales leader, you have to have, the team has to feel you've got their best interest at heart. You've got to be able to communicate effectively, even those tough conversations. You need to be able to coach and mentor. A lot of times, if you were a salesperson and got promoted now out of that group, you were friends with these people as a salesperson, and now you're their manager, oh my goodness. What a difficult job that is because the first time you try to coach them or mentor them, they're going to play the friend card or, oh, you've changed, right? That's the kind of things that you hear. And that's really not the case at all. So I, I want to be able to over communicate and I always want to put things back to the team. So if there's an issue, what I would do as a sales leader is get the team together and say, okay, let's identify the issue. And as a group, let's discuss three potential options. How do we address this issue? Of, of come up with three options and then which one do you all choose and why? So I may have an answer here that I want to give you, but I want to get their buy-in and engagement for this. So the way I think sales is changing, it's not managing numbers. It, it's, it's not managing people in that sense of the word. It really is building a high performing team where the team members hold each other accountable. You know, that, that, you know, there's a, there's a culture, there's a behavior that's established here. And, and, you know, when it comes to the end, you've got to make the call. If, if, if you can't, you got to break the tie, but boy, if it becomes more their idea, the passion and engagement that they have and the ultimate success is so much better. I love that. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And I, again, I'm just, I, I always look down at my notes and I've got tons of them. So I, I always look at that as success that our listeners are grabbing nuggets that are good for them, regardless of their job function that are just going to help them do that. So thank you for that. It was a great, 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 thoughtful response. Um, John, thank you very much. That's fantastic. And just before we wrap up, I have a question that we love to ask our guests. And that is, do you have a book or a podcast or a movie or something that you'd love to share with our guests that really has helped you um, understand and navigate change that you would advise they, they get their hands on? Yeah, I like Blue Ocean Strategy. 
Um, you know, I think that was a really good book for me. I enjoyed how they positioned it. And again, just as a synopsis on the front end, you know, the concept was there's two oceans out there, a blue ocean and a red ocean. Mm -hmm. And the red ocean is where everybody, the competitors are all, you know, churning up all this and, and there's blood in the water. And what they're saying is don't compete with your competition, but make them irrelevant, right? So to create that blue ocean. So to me, that was one of the books that I enjoyed reading. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, John. We have thoroughly enjoyed the conversation today. Um, and to our listeners, you can find out more about uh, John at buoyance.com. Um, it's been a wonderful chat and thank you for joining us uh, today on Change Cultivators. 